Yeah, I was really challenged by the, uh, the words of this last song where it says, Take me deeper than my feet could ever wander, and my faith will be made stronger in the presence of my Savior. certain words stick out to you as you're reading certain chapters and uh, here lately the word of all words the law has uh, jumped out at me as I've read um, both in the Old Testament and the New I just thought wow there's a bunch of sentences about the law and uh, and I I never sort of paid attention to that Um, my father was a lawyer but I've never really seriously considered studying it. Um, But, um, you know, the psalmist in Psalm 119, he writes, Great peace have those who love your law. And then in the New Testament, in many of uh, Paul's letters, we have um, phrases like, The law will bring, the law brings wrath, Romans 4.15. You are not under the law, but under grace, Romans 6.14. Now we are released from the law, Romans 7, 6. And, um, you know, in 1 Timothy 1, 9, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. And um, Jesus said this, he said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So, um, if I understand right, there's actually three kinds of or uses of the word law uh, in the Bible. We have um, moral laws, which are things like the great, I mean, the Ten Commandments or the two great commandments uh, that Jesus summarized the Ten Commandments to, and and these are perpetual, unchanging, like God. Um, Then we have ceremonial laws. These are religious ritual laws given to Israel that were designed to point them towards Christ, things like the sacrifices. Um, And those were abolished. Uh, Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. Uh, So there was no need for those to continue. And then there's judicial law, the civil laws that govern our society. We have laws against murder, robbery. Um, Those have a place in in the world today in that they restrain evil. Things that are against the law, we are deterred from doing but as it said, as I said earlier, we have uh, things like Paul's uh, Romans, where it says, "You are not under the law, but under grace," and we are saved by grace, and we celebrate this in the church and 
Uh, I always talk about that when I share the gospel with people. Um, we know we are justified by faith alone, saved by grace alone, and not under the curse of the law. Wherever there's a presentation of the gospel, it's almost a necessary distinction to make between the consequences of breaking the law and sin and God's grace and forgiveness. So we can't really talk about the gospel without saying it is the answer through the law. The law cannot save. Keeping the law doesn't save you. There's no salvation in keeping the law. So what the law was powerless to do, Christ did. And God did through Christ in us. That is the salvation message. Um, the leaders of the Reformation understood that there was a distinction between the law and grace. And they <coughs> understood that uh, this doesn't mean that we are not obligated to the law. So when we're talking about the law, we're talking about behavior. And we need the law. It's useful. Otherwise, we are a law unto ourselves. Even though the New Testament says we are under grace, the New Testament has a lot to say about our behavior, our attitudes, and our expectations. So I'm going to be working my way toward Romans 7. We're going to start in Romans 5. If you look at verse 18, it says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So here we see there, that clear distinction between the law and the gospel, between law and grace. Now we were born sinners. That would be lawbreakers. And we're also born with an understanding of, of legal things. And this is how we know that we fall short of the law and what the law demands. Well, humanity rationalizes why we fall short, but that's kind of where they're stuck. The righteous demands of the law had to be met in full and were met by Jesus. Jesus paid the just penalty for our sins and also fulfilled the law perfectly. Sin came, and then the law was given in order that it might be our guide, and as the New Testament says, our guardian. Galatians 3.24 says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. There have been several persistent heresies, if you will, um, concerning legalism and the gospel. Some would say, well, no, salvation is by grace plus this these legal things. And others would go the other way and say, well, no, we don't have to worry about the law. It was abolished. It's just love. And there's a name for that. It's called antinomianism, which means no law. And this is also a heresy. 
And if we look at Romans 3.21, it says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. And this is the verse we all memorize. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. And then in verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So this makes clear the righteousness, the holiness of God, that the law bears witness to. So this is the first purpose, or this is one of the purposes of the law, is to show the righteousness of God. The law reveals to us the extent of God's holiness. A righteous God requires a penalty for sin if he is consistent with his own character. The law also makes it clear that there must be punishment for sin and that we are doomed because we fall short. So this is another purpose of the law, to show us that we're sinners and that we are in need of a Savior. Now God's wrath is not his ill temper, it's not his anger or his bad tendency. It is a necessary function of his character. His righteousness that he judged those that sin against him. But God the Father not only required the sacrifice, he provided the sacrifice in Christ Jesus. To demonstrate, as it says here in verse 26, that he is both the just and the justifier. This is how he redeems us, through Christ the justifier. It's not that the law was bad and the gospel is good, the law showed us clearly why we needed a Savior. And every covenant God has made with his people was a covenant that demonstrated his graciousness. And the new covenant of Christ, we see that he graciously saves. What we learn from reading the New Testament is that we are saved by grace alone. We are justified by faith alone. And we are united to Christ alone. In Romans 5, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into his grace, in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of glory. In Romans 5 and other places, Paul writes about our lives post-salvation. In Romans 6, it says, What shall then we... What what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. This is Paul's strong answer. By no means. Of course not. <laughs> right. Paul asks and answers this question, perhaps because he heard this idea in Rome. But there is no demonstration of the gospel if those that are saved by grace go back to a life of sin. Verse 10 and 
chapter 6 of Romans, is for the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So that you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So we are, we are now taught by the law not to sin. We are under grace, not under the law, not to continue in sin. You know, in all of the New Testament, what Paul wrote and what Jesus said, um, they never minimize the gravity of sin. And the law is what tells us how sinful our sin is. You know, in chapter 6 of Romans there, Paul speaks of obedience, being slaves to righteousness. He says, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which is, leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. And he goes on, he says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things was death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So our sanctification is never complete in this life, but it should be happening over time. So finally we get to Romans 7, where it talks about the law and sin. It says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if we had not met, we had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means, Paul says. If it were not for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known I needed a Savior. Paul is saying the law is good. He told me that I was a coveter. And that that displeases God. And I need to know that. We need to know what pleases God and what does not. And the law teaches us that. So continuing in verse 9, it says, I, want, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. And here this is the very thing that promised life. We think about that question in Deuteronomy. I set before you life and death. Choose life and live. What was choosing life? It was obedience to the law. Right? One of the important ways that God shows us his love for us is showing 
sin to be sin. If we didn't, by the grace of God, come to understand sin to be sin, we would sin more. We are not smart enough or clever enough to figure it out. And God shows us the sinfulness of sin by means of the law. That's why Paul says here in verse 12, For the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and true. So now comes the part that's a little bit hard to read. But it's also very personal. Where Paul talks about his struggles you know, with temptation. It's verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. And that is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want, I keep on doing. For I know I do what I do not want, it is no longer. So now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. You know, Jesus said in John 6, the spirit gives life, but the flesh profits nothing. This is the same principle that Paul is saying in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. So he's being very personal here, I think, in uh, describing the struggle between the flesh and the spirit, even in his own life. So going on in verse 21, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in the members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Then he gives the answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. The Apostle Paul was very honest here about how his own struggles with the flesh and the spirit. But then he says, you know, what then shall we say? The law is sin by no means. It is the Spirit of God in us that allows us to overcome the flesh and thus fulfill the law and follow the law. You know, I was in school. We, we had to read a book in English class called Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And uh, I learned recently the story behind that story. Um, so in the, in the science fiction story, the, you know, this Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, he becomes, Dr. Jekyll becomes Mr. Hyde when he drinks this potion. And he goes off and does these bad things, this alter ego side of Jekyll. And one day as the potion's wearing off and he's, Jekyll is returning to his house, he passes by a mirror. And he's, in his mind, Jekyll, but in his body, Hyde. 
And he looks at the mirror and he says, this too is myself. And it turns out the story behind this book, which was written by Robert Louis Stevenson, a British author, is that there was a wealthy physician in London who lived in this beautiful white mansion. And it had a carriage house behind it. And um, when this physician died, it was discovered he'd been doing these terrible experiments in the carriage house out back. And, and then these deliveries in the middle of the night and strange comings and goings. And it's just this opposite personality to this position that was regarded in society. And um, so this is the inspiration behind the book, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And Paul is talking here about the same struggle. Um, so even Paul you know, realized that we need Jesus every day. I need God's help all the time to do what is right and to follow his law and to have in my heart what the psalmist said that he loved God's law so there are lots of uses for the law in the believer's life and the first is one I've already mentioned is that God loved us enough to show us through the law that we were sinners he loved us enough to speak to us and not to abandon us. You know, God could have said, well, they're sinning. I don't, I'll just leave them to it. But he doesn't do that, does he? And he allows us to hear him calling. Come out. Come away. God loves us enough to speak to us and not abandon us in our sinfulness. When God gave the law to Israel long ago, and they knew that it was good, it defined that they had a relationship with God. You know, and other nations around Israel didn't have that. Uh, we read about some of them. Remember the people that worshipped Moloch? They sacrificed their children to satisfy the anger of their God. But Israel knew differently because they had been given the law. They knew what God demanded. They knew what God was like through the law. God wanted a pure and contrite heart in his followers that would live in obedience. But that's the first use of the law, is that, to show us that God loves us. And the second use is to define and protect human flourishing. And this is sort of through our societal laws, but you know, God knows what's best for us. God created us. He knows that injustice is bad for us. That telling the truth is good. And lying is harmful. So God gave us the law to protect us and to preserve us. Another thing the law does is it restrains evil even in a fallen world. This is through the moral laws that make their way into our government laws. Even in a fallen, corrupt, even with a, with a fallen, corrupt conscience, people are deterred from killing and robbing and stealing by the laws of our government. The main point of the law, though, was, as I said before, to show us our need for Christ, to show us that we need Christ every day, constantly. The law also instructs us in godliness. It teaches us what pleases God, and we need to know that. It tells us what sin is. 
And the law shows us the glory of God, the place that we're headed toward, the work of God in everyday life. You know, when we see justice in the world, God is exalted because that is who God is, a God of justice. And also, when we see mercy and grace, God is exalted. When we don't get what we deserve, we understand God's mercy. How do we know what we deserve? The law upholds us. And lastly, the law makes us yearn for glory. That day when we no longer need the law, when the law is fulfilled, when we're doing all that God made us to do. And Jesus said, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And so it is with this that the psalmist wrote, Great peace have those who love your law. And in Hebrews 8 and in Hebrews 10, it says the Spirit writes the law on the hearts and minds of those who are born again. And in the Old Testament, Jeremiah's vision of the New Covenant is that the law will be written on the hearts. He says, this is my covenant that I will make with the people of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. So the teaching of Hebrews and, and here is that we have a renewed heart with an affinity and a love for the law of God, resulting in a cheerful and loving obedience. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Romans seven twenty-two. I delight in the law of God. Here again, we see the important bond between God's love and God's law. Love and law working together give us a clear guidance in how to please God and know his will. And the law shows us our sin and thrusts us towards the cross and a savior for mercy and grace. His love constrains us to walk a path of righteousness defined by the commandments and marked by joy and humble servanthood. And that is the right relationship between law and love. So there's an awful lot in the New Testament about the law. And it was an instrument God used to demonstrate who he was, to define our relationship with him, and to show us our need for a savior and forgiveness through grace. Thank you, Lord, for what you have given us in your word. And Lord, help us to apply this word to our hearts, that we may be more like you. Open our eyes to see the ways that we need you every day. And teach us to show and show us how to be thankful for the law. Thank you for the gift of salvation. We would have remained under the curse of the law were it not for the Lord Jesus. Lord, you did not wait for us to cry out. 
and she sought us out and found us. And you made us way for us to salvation by grace through faith. Lord, we thank you for this grace, a gift beyond our comprehension. We thank you, Lord. Amen. So Greg's going to come up. title of the book was Dr. Jekyll and Mrs. Hyde. <laughs> okay, now that we've cleared that up. appreciate what Tim had to say about the law. And uh, just a couple of verses stand it. In the book of Exodus, first of all, a couple of verses. When Moses comes down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments, it says, Moses came down, or he wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel and that offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people and they said all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient so Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words and in the book of Hebrews It says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and bulls and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled, sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offer himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience 
from dead works to serve the living God. Hundreds and hundreds of years, the bloods of bulls and goats sprinkled on the people, sprinkled on the book of the covenant. No more. Now it's the blood of Jesus sprinkled on us, washing us from sin. And in Matthew it says, And when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. And then it says, While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink it all, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. The blood of Jesus. Perfection. Poured out for us, washing away sin and shame, not for an hour or two, but forever. And it says many times in, in, in Scripture, just for example in Matthew, just the chapter before, it says that, actually two chapters before, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. He's coming. He's coming again with power and great glory. And in the meantime, he says, remember me. Remember me for what I've done. All that I have done, poured out my life, my body broken, taking away your sins, so that where I am, you may be with me forever. No more shame, no more sin. He's perfecting us, he's changing us. But he says, remember me and take the cup, take the bread, the bread representing my body, the cup representing my blood, poured out for you, no more blood of bulls and goats, no more temporary pushing back sin for a season, but pushing it back, obliterating it forever and ever. So we're going to take communion together and remember, he says, do this in remembrance of me. And he says, do it if you're a believer. Because if there's anything you've got in your heart against somebody else, you need to repent of it when you come to me taking communion. Even as I forgive others, you forgive others. So we're going to take communion now. Preston, you're going to help me administer the elements. And what we'll do is we'll dip the bread into the juice and take it as you go back to your seat. So we'll take it individually, not wait until the end. So there's the bread.
we just thank you for your great love that you would send your son on our behalf. And Lord, even as Mary was saying earlier today, Lord, he, he took on him the things that we deserve. And he got his righteousness and he showed grace to us. And Lord, we just thank you that we can remember and you call us to remember the great sacrifice, the separation that you experienced and eternal union with the Son. So we just lift up these simple elements that represent his body and his blood. We ask that they would be sanctified and set apart and made holy. Uh, Lord, that we would examine ourselves, see that we're of the faith, and that we would declare your death and our partaking of this. And so we bless you, we thank you, we remember, Lord, what you've done in our behalf. So if you'll come now.
think, why did Jesus have to die for me? Because God is a holy God. He's a righteous God. And He couldn't just say, I forgive you, and not be laughed out of heaven. There had to be a price paid so that God would be just in forgiving us. Does that not fill your heart with wonder? And does it not fill your heart with gratitude about the grace that God has given us? That He would desire to reveal Himself to us but not abandon us in our sin or come to free us and forgive us <coughs> filled with wonder remember all that you heard this morning. Remember the taste. The bread and the juice. Remember Christ. Remember that He has defeated death. Remember that He came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. He came to reveal Father to us. Remember that He loves us.
über dir sorgen. to come together in the fellowship, to come together corporately. Lord, it's a, uh, such a joy and privilege. Lord, you, you stir us up. You comfort us. You give us hope. You cleanse us. You make your word come alive in our hearts, Lord, that we might have life. Before we leave this morning, um, maybe a few brief prayers. Bill mentioned to me that Bill Stoffreger, many of you know, has had uh, another issue with congestive heart failure. Uh, he is at home. He's not. They're not going to the hospital. So you, you connect the dots. You can see where Peggy is at that this right at this moment. Um, and is there any other? Urgent matter of prayer. Just to, um, Say that again, Bill. He's where? He's at home. He's at home. Yes. And there's nothing the doctors can do. The doctors have said there's nothing they can do. So they're not going to the hospital. And they have, we asked if we could come see him, and they, she said he was in too bad a shape to see anybody. Now that doesn't mean Greg that, that you he would go. like he would like to see you, Greg. Yeah, that doesn't mean that you can't go. That doesn't mean that that he would not like to see you. But he said that she said that he was in too bad a shape for us to see him. Okay, I'll call. So, so we want to lift up Bill in prayer. But uh, Ricky, Ricky is still facing surgery. Right. Uh, we don't know when the surgery is going to be, but. I think he has another appointment with the doctor okay. around the 20. Okay. Those of you who don't know Bill, a lot of us uh, fellowship with Bill for many years, and Ricky uh, is a blind man, very talented musically, country guy, and he's married a blind woman. So imagine this blind couple caring for one another. And they used to live here in town, and now they've moved away, but he's facing surgery uh, for several different things. Primarily, it's uh, potentially cancer, cancer. retinal cancer. So he has a large group. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's call upon the Lord, can we?
And we know that this bill has been yours for such a long time. And that he's loved you and loves you now. And that we know that he will love you forever. And we just pray, Father, that uh, you would reach out and bring a peace to him and a peace to Peggy during this difficult time. Lord, we don't know what what your plan is over the next days or the next week. But we do know, Father, that uh, you do all things well. That your heart is one of love and compassion and mercy. And that the joy that is in you and with you will be with us forevermore. So we just pray for Bill and pray that your hand would be upon him. And that you would do those things which are pleasing to you because we know that that will be wonderful beyond our understanding. Lord, hold him close, comfort him, lift him up, and just cause him to see your face. Yes, Lord. And we just bow before you, Lord, and thankfully for Bill and Peggy's salvation. Lord, I lift up to you Ricky and Vicki. They are precious to us and precious to you. They've brought great joy to my heart and to many people. Lord, you've used your word to work in their lives and to reach many people. We just ask that you would be with them, that you would comfort them, that you would take care of Ricky. Lord, you're the great physician. You're our healer. Yes, Jesus. Lord, we ask that you would heal Ricky and make him well. Restore his body. Yes, God. And make him whole. Lord, we lift up the physicians and the medical staff, the, the people that do everything from, from the delicate surgery to the scrubbing of the floors. We just ask that you would be with them and Watch over them and give them wisdom and insight in how to best take care of Ricky. Lord, we ask for a special measure of comfort for Vicki, that you would be with her, that you would give her your peace that only comes from you. Lord, they know that you're a sovereign God, that you love them. Help them to know that you really do love them and that you really do care for them. Give them an extra measure of your peace. Lord, I ask you to give Ricky some comfort. I know he's in pain. I just ask that you would comfort him. Take away the pain. And Lord, I thank you that you have surrounded them with people that love them. I thank you for the new church that they have found that they can be a part of. I thank you that there is a place where they can minister. I thank you for the talents that you've given them. Bless them with your rest. Surround them with your love. It's in your precious name.
sound weird. She went back up. Okay. First of all, today's Marcy's birthday. Today's Marcy's birthday. Should we go ahead and sing? Yes. Happy birthday to stand up, Marcy. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Marcy. Happy birthday to This Wednesday, seven o'clock. Okay, anybody else got something for it? Pat. Well, wait, thank thank you for having us in your home again. And next next Sunday we are meeting the Durhams. That's right. And if you need a calendar, they're right here on top of the park. This they show where we're meeting at least for the next couple of Sundays. And I'll bring a uh, sign-up sheet for those of you that post so we can get the next round of posts set up. I will not be here next Sunday. Crossway will be in Durham. I will bring it, I'll bring it to Preston's house on April the 6th. Well, hopefully we don't have disasters this time like we did last time. <laughs> yeah, it's ready now. <laughs> yeah, it's finally hooked. Okay. <laughs> so I, I need just a few minutes to get things set up. And I thought if it was okay, I'd go ahead and say a blessing over the food. And I'd like to just say a blessing over us as a fellowship, if that's okay. Let me just say one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, last Sunday we were at the Cheeks, right? And um, one of the guys that was just visiting for the first time, he says, you know, afterwards, he says, you know, I've never been in a church service where they didn't take an offering. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> so, but there was a basket out there, and uh, the intention was is if you wanted to contribute something, put it in the basket. So the basket is right here. Now, there's other things in there, but if you'd like to contribute, that's the basket. <laughs> Thank you, Pat. Don't you like that we're a church where we don't take up an offering? <laughs> I think that's so cool. Let's pray just a second. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for this little body of Christ, Lord. We're just a little tiny part of your body. But I thank you for this body, and I pray for your blessings upon this body. I pray that you strengthen us, that you refresh us, that you revive our sense of destiny and purpose, that you give us a calling, Lord, for this time and this season, that we have clarity and and energizing from your spirit, Lord. And I thank you for the food, Lord. I pray that you just cause everything to be heated and fixed the way it needs to be and that you would bless it and sanctify it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'll ring the bell when it's ready. Okay. Just a couple minutes. We'll visit for a while. <laughs>